0: We're in Philippians chapter three. We're going to close out this chapter tonight, and we're going to be closing out the book of Philippians hopefully in the next couple weeks. Uh, I've been really encouraged by this entire study through this letter. Uh, Paul's book of Philippians is a very cherished letter, one that, uh, as we've seen already, has much, much to say to us here in in twenty twenty one. And I'm grateful for the fact that we can read and glean even from what Paul was here writing and thinking about all these uh, many uh, centuries uh, centuries ago as he was locked up in a Roman jail cell. Uh, last week we kind of surveyed some of, I would say maybe the majority of Philippians chapter 3 and we kind of looked at... Christ Jesus, as we, as we were saying last week, as our saving joy, the object of our saving joy. And we noted how, or hopefully you remember, just how similar we could say that the beginning of Philippians 3 is with the book of Romans. In fact, there's many similarities if you go through uh, the first several verses especially uh, and go through and note how often some of the sim- same themes appear in his letter to the church at Rome. But what I find so fascinating, especially about this particular chapter, is Paul's honesty with himself. We spent some time noting this, but I just it's fascinating to me, especially as you go uh, into verse three, where he 's talking about the circumcision, and then he goes into the confidence that he might have in the flesh, as he continues there from verse four down through verse six, talking about the the reasons why he should have confidence in his flesh, confidence in the things that he can do and the things that he can achieve. And though he says in verse 7, what things were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Actually, he is making this testimony here that those things that he used to perhaps have confidence in, those fleshly attainments, those fleshly perfections, we might say, he now considers them, as he says in verse 8, he considers them but dung, refuse, rubbish, that's what he considers them. They're nothing to him now. And instead, therefore, instead of this confidence derived solely through what his flesh can attain unto, he is, as he says, he is possessed. Or the word is, in verse 12, he is apprehended by a, we might call it, a better confidence. Note again verse 12. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend, that for which also I am hem- apprehended of Christ Jesus. This Confidence that he now has is one that is way more sure and way more concrete, we might say. It's a way more sure confidence, and it stems precisely because and through this excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Note as he says that in verse 8. Yea, Dallas, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and here is where we get into this sort of shifting of the gears we might say in verse 12 whereas he has now been focused we might say on this object of Christ as our save our object of saving joy he is he's put him forward and put him sort of speak on the pedestal of this as of this saving faith That he is here proclaimed, especially in verse 9 where he talks about the righteousness of what comes through faith. But I would say this latter half, beginning roughly in verse 12, but especially later on, he, I would say, talks about Christ as our object of, we might say, perfecting joy or our heavenly joy. He leans into this idea in verse 12 of apprehension and, we might say, perfection. Notice in verse 12, I'm going to read through verse 16. Notice how often those two words appear. Verse 12 says, Not as though I had already attained either or already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend, that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. There in those verses that term apprehend or as is also translated attain is mentioned some five times. And perfect is mentioned twice. Which I kind of think reveals what's on Paul's mind. Again remember Paul is sitting in a Roman jail cell shackled in chains as he's being guarded by Roman centurions. And yet... His mind is not only sort of detained, we might say, on his own death. Which, as we've noted several times, that theme of death appears quite often throughout this letter. But I think also, he's there's this sort of revealing of motive. It's interesting to me how in this particular section, we have sort of the motive of Paul's faith sort of come and bubble through the surface. What's motivating Paul... To continue the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to continue in faithfulness, to continue in his devotion to the things of Christ, even as he says, sits in bonds. What's, What's stimulating that desire? What's stimulating that faith? What's invigorating that devotion that he is here displaying? I think the answer is right here in this text. As he says in verse 12, he's not attained. He has not apprehended, or as he, we could say, he has not achieved perfection. He's making that very clear. I have not achieved some sort of spiritual enlightenment to the point where I have gleaned into the perfection that I can somehow achieve on my own. Actually, he's saying the opposite of that. I've actually, I'm so far below that standard, below that requirement, which, begs the question why was it necessary for Paul to say such things well I think one reason is perhaps that you know he's an apostle who is put on this pedestal of spiritual perfection many times perhaps and yet he is saying you can follow me but trust me I have not achieved anything in that regard but also I think As you perhaps may well know, there was uh, constituents in the early church who saw the benefits of organized religion only in terms of the virtue with which it could produce in those who went to church. So the benefits of the church was the idea that it could produce moral people. It was entirely about apprehending people, producing people that were more virtuous, that were more honest, that were more ethical, that were more moral, that were, we might say, more perfect than other people. And a prevailing idea in those days centered around this notion that you could attain attain unto the resurrection of the dead by means of one's own purity or integrity or walk. Your virtue was sort of the key to this perfection. And your virtue came about as you were indoctrinated in these particular truths. Which then makes paradise this sort of carrot that's dangling at the end of the stick. This idea that you can attain it. You can achieve it. And therefore this makes this Jesus of Nazareth and all of his teachings supposedly twisted. Twisted not into the revealing of the heart of God. Not only revealing what is the nature of Yahweh himself. Instead this Jesus, this teacher from Nazareth. Is now just none other than a teacher teaching insights into moral perfection. Which is a radically different uh, sort of view of Christ than Paul had for sure. I think... These are, particularly are the brethren Paul has in mind in verse two, where he's talking about, he likens them unto dogs and evil workers. And these, as he says, these who were the concision. As we noted last week, that word concision is a word which we should likely translate the mutilation. Because that's essentially what the Lord means. And he's likening those who say that if you want to be morally pure and spiritually perfect, you have to do these extra sets of things. They were putting more and more bonds onto these who were in the church. He says they are mutilators of the faith. And furthermore, he classifies them in verse 18 as enemies of the cross of Christ. Notice verse 18. For as, or excuse me, for many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. I think what Paul sort of leans into here in this particular verse is. The hard sort of time we have at times to differentiate between morality and faith. We It it, it sometimes can be confusing to see people who are very moral people. And then also try to uh, differentiate between that morality and the fact that they don't have saving faith. And here Paul is almost saying the same thing. I've told you often, he says. How there are those who walk among us proclaiming this perfection through trivial pursuits. And actually he says they're not perfect at all. They're enemies of this cross. I don't think there's any harsher sort of category to be put in than Paul the apostle calling you an enemy of the cross of Christ. And yet he is calling them here just that. And I think it's interesting. Paul is calling these, these, these group of false teachers who were coming in and proclaiming this achievable perfection, we might say, is here he's saying, these are those who are against the cross, against the teachings of the apostles. And to be sure, Paul would be very quick to say that there is an element of moralistic behavioral change within the gospel. It's inherent within it. Paul says as much in Ephesians chapter four. And he continues in chapter 5 and chapter 6, and he says as much in Romans chapter 12, and he continues on with the rest of that letter. And in fact, almost all of the letters of Paul include ways in which the gospel itself leads to changes in the way we think and act ethically and morally. But it's also important to note that those come after the declaration of the gospel, They come after the declaration and actually after the long, expansive exposition of who this Jesus is. In fact, that's what I think Paul is always and everywhere trying to show us, is that the gospel is not against morals. It's just against uh, the idea that that's all that God's after that inherent within moralistic behavioral change, that's all that the gospel's after. In fact, that's not true at all. It's not after a moral revolution, it's after resurrection. It's after being raised from sin unto new life, not just not doing bad things, not just not doing the things we used to do. And such is why Paul says, these are enemies of the cross. They're reducing the cross to a lower level of power, of influence, of spiritual truth. And he says they'll be known, these enemies, because as he says, their God is their belly. For many walk, as he says, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame and who mind earthly things. This god of the belly is not talking about a swollen appetite. Maybe perhaps you feel like after this weekend, your god is your belly. Way too much pumpkin pie, perhaps. I don't know. But literally the way the word is, should be rendered is that they worship themselves. It's like the old reformers with this Latin phrase in curvatus in se, which is just a Latin phrase which means they were turned in on themselves. You could, you could fancy and render it navel-gazers. That's essentially what Paul is calling these enemies. <laughs> they worship themselves. They're turned in on themselves, seeing only how they can improve themselves. They're not concerned with others. They're not concerned with the truth of Jesus Christ. They're not propelled by love. No, instead they're propelled by themselves. The things that they can achieve, that they can attain. They are enamored by this idea that the paradise which, end, which by which we enter, uh, or the perfection by which we enter paradise is achievable and attainable by what they can do. Which is interesting because Paul actually says the opposite <clears throat> in verse 19. Notice at the end, he says that they mind earthly things. You see, according to Paul, these enemies of the cross were bent entirely on trivial pursuits. Even though they might stand in lecterns and stand behind pulpits and they were teaching in synagogues and they were saying all of these perfections, these attainments, these things that they have apprehended, these uh, spiritual enlightenments that they have had. Actually, he says, they're not minding anything but the trivial pursuits of perfection that have no lasting value in eternity. They have the appearance of godliness as Paul would say elsewhere to Timothy. But they have none of its substance. They have none of the, of the roots of what they are supposedly talking about. They are talking a good talk. But they are, in, are even perhaps walking a good walk. But all of their virtuous deeds are nothing but splendid sins. And here Paul is decimating these enemies. Not only just by calling them enemies, but by ruining the way in which they are propelling themselves and propagating these doctrines. And I think it's indicative, though, of Paul's heart. That these false teachers, these he says, these dogs, these evil workers. Notice he says in verse 18, For many, of, many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping. You want to know what moved Paul? What constrained Paul? We could read 2 Corinthians 5.14. I am constrained by the love of Christ. And you can see that even here. Even for these who were preaching falsely against the gospel. What does he say? My heart is bent towards them. I'm writing to you about them, even through tears. Their falsehood doesn't uh, stir up or drum up derision out of Paul. It doesn't stir up or drum up any sort of anger out of Paul. Actually, it drums up compassion. He's weeping for these brothers. He's weeping for these enemies. His heart is burning for them. As he says, he knows what lies ahead of them. Their end is destruction. And precisely because they're putting their hope of eternity on a perfection that they attain. On a perfection that they can achieve through all of their spiritual attainments. And here Paul is saying that's not what the cross is about. That's not what this cross of Christ is here meant to show forth and declare to us. Actually verse 9, what is it about? Here is his present desire and his present focus. This cross is all about revealing the righteousness precisely of God. We noted that several weeks ago when we preached on Romans chapter 1. And the same thing is in Paul's mind here. The righteousness that we, by which we enter glory, as he says here, by which we achieve, quote unquote, the resurrection of the dead, is none other than the righteousness which God reveals on the cross. And that's what he says is the cross is all about. And this is his present desire. His, his only source of confidence comes from this, knowing Christ. As he says there, that I may know him. And this knowledge is important. This knowledge is more than merely mental assent. The idea that he he says that he knows about this thing. It's not just that he's doctrinally precise. He doesn't just have all his I's dotted and T's crossed in terms of the way he conducts his theology. (laughs) That's important, but that's not what Paul is getting at. This knowledge is, we might say, an experiential knowledge. Something that he has gleaned through experience. At this point in time, Paul has been through thick and thin, we might say. He's been, as he's going to say in a couple verses in chapter 4, he knows both how to be abased and how to abound. (laughs) He's been in those high spots where it seems as though God is blessing him with success perhaps emotionally physically ministerially financially and he's also been in those ruts when it seems as though god has turned against him imagine having the resume of paul's as we can read it in second corinthians and he goes through the litany of things that he's been through (laughs) beaten shipwrecked cast out of this city Smacked in the face because his only method, his only ministry, his only message was Christ and his cross. And that's what he's been about from the very beginning. He says here that I may know him. This is that knowledge. It's the knowledge of knowing genuinely about this person. And I think that that's what I think he's getting at here, that I may know him. You see, as I've, as I've noted in several other passages, but I think it's so essential to the faith that we have, that we claim that we have when we walk into church. When we say we believe, and when we say we have faith, it's not just an amorphous idea. It's not just this nebulous thing that we say that we believe in. In fact, it was interesting to me um, when I was working at a company in Florida. Before I was preaching full time, I was working in a chemical company. And I was known around that place as sort of Father Brad. Only because many of them had Catholic backgrounds, but I was sort of a spiritual guide, if you will. <laughs> I had many counseling conversations within that office, which I was, now as I look back on that, I wish I had taken more advantage of those. But regardless, it was interesting in one of these moments, uh, my boss's, one of his relations passed away. And it was interesting as I was speaking with him, one of the other co workers said that she was going to pray to the universe. And I thought that that was curious because. I was wondering who she was praying to or what she thought that the universe was going to do when she prayed to it. This idea that you can pray to some other nebulous, almost amoebic-like spiritual force, and it would do something for you. And it always struck me sad to know that when she prays, there's no one she's praying to, just the universe, (laughs) And I I contrast that, especially with this here, Paul's statement, I may know him, but especially with that which is so essential to our faith. You have a person that you're praying to. When you get on your knees, or maybe you're just sitting down because if you get on your knees, you can't get back up. And again, that's fine. I'm there too sometimes. (laughs) When you're praying, there's a person who's listening to you, not a force This is not Star Wars. This is not Luke Skywalker. There's a person who's bending his ear to hear your cries. To hear your desperation. The the things with which Paul had experienced was precisely that. The knowledge of a person who sustains him. Yes, through being abased and through abounding. Through thick and thin. He had experiential knowledge of how Jesus Christ, the person, sustained him through those seasons. And that's exactly what he's conveying to this church. Knowing a person. This to me is something that has spoken to me in so many ways throughout the years. The idea that all of what this Bible is about, all of what our faith is about, is centered around a person who has flesh and blood like you and I, yet without sin. Think about what we are entering into, the, into during these weeks. Advent, we might say. The weeks that are leading up to Christmas. This time of anticipation and faith, of of building up of hope. Uh, uh, The coming birth of Jesus Christ, who is what or is who is who? The word of God made flesh. Which is literally that, and it's something our minds can't can't get over, and shouldn't get over, and perhaps can't get wrapped around, because he's one hundred percent God and one hundred percent man at the same time. He is fully God, not losing any ounce of his deity, and yet he is man, and he is a man like us, who got tired and hungry, who was weary, and often had to go to sleep, and he often had perhaps sleepless nights and and hungry nights. He had dirts under his fingernails. He got he got skinned, uh, skinned knees. And had to take showers. He was a person. And yet this person is one that we can know fully. As Paul is here saying. <laughs> by faith. By looking to the cross. You see this is. The linchpin, we might say. This is the crux of all of what Paul has come to believe. This is what's changed his life. Not a nebulous force. Not a, a, an un, sort of uh, indefinable sort of uh, spiritual idea. It's a person. Remember who met him on that road to Damascus? <laughs> it was the resurrected, glorified Jesus. Who appeared in front of Paul as a light which blinded him. And ever since that day he was leading church after church. Into a deeper and deeper knowledge of the very person who had changed his life. And here he is saying this is my life's pursuit. (laughs) Knowledge. As he says here the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And here this is the good part. If this is what Paul is after. If this, as he says, this is what our our life of faith is all about. It's knowing him. That's good for us because that means our pursuit is never done. Precisely because this Christ is an infinite person. Which means there will always be new discoveries to be made about who this Christ is. And what he has done. And why it's so real. And why it's so resonant for us. Every single morning we are given new and fresh reminders of what and who this Christ is. As he says here, that I may know him. This is the aim of all of our Christian pursuits. Of all of our, uh, it's the, the goal and the target of all of our races as Christians in this church. It's Christ, the person, the inexhaustible person. As he says there in verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And here, this is what it's all about for Paul. This life and walk of faith that begins at the cross by seeing Christ high and lifted up. Who is God in the flesh revealing on the cross precisely what God is all about. And the rest of the Christian life is centered around that cross. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And he says he's following after that cross in all of its depth of meaning. As he says there in verse 12, he's been apprehended. I love how he says this. I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I am also apprehended. I'm following after this thing that has so seized me and taken control of me. It's sort of reminiscent of Romans chapter 6 where he talks about being snatched out of slavery to sin and now he's been ushered into the service of the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. Has that same similar idea and he says here he's never even come close to apprehending the righteousness which has apprehended him. What a blessed statement that is from Paul. And therefore he keeps this cross Ever before him. It's this prize. This prize that keeps him running in this high calling of God. This cross that whereon Christ was crucified. That's where his perfection was. That's where his hope was. That's where everything that he had was, uh, was found. And this is what moved him. This is what moved Paul. And his encouragement is is just that. Notice in verse 15, Let therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same thing. Let us mind, uh, walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. His desire was for this church to keep the same thing in front of them. Not some other trivial pursuit, but precisely the cross of Christ. Keep that in front of your eyes. Undertake the same rule. Undertake the same pursuit. The perfection that gets you into glory comes when it is revealed on the cross. Keep that in front of your eyes. As he says there in verse 17, be followers together of me. And he's not being conceited when he says that. He's not trying to loft himself up. Actually, he's using himself as a rallying cry for the church. Join me in this pursuit of knowledge. The knowledge of Christ Jesus. He's, he's trying to call all of his brothers and sisters in arms. Come to his side. Join me in this high calling of God. Which is none other than what he says there in verse 20. Which I find so amazing. What does he say? For our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. You see this high calling of God. This pursuit of the excellency of the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. Is just this living in light of the fact that you and I right now are citizens of heaven. That's essentially what that word conversation means. It, it is Perhaps better translated, your commonwealth, your your community. The the commonwealth to which you owe your truest allegiance is not Pennsylvania, it's not the United States, it's heaven. As he says there, that's where your citizenship lies. That's your truest citizenship. It's the kingdom of heaven. And what's amazing... (laughs) I think it's amazing, I'm going to rehash a little bit. It's amazing at the beginning of this chapter where he says, you are the circumcision right now. You are part of the elect covenant of faith right now by faith. And he's saying here at the end, you are a part of this kingdom of heaven right now. And so we can infer from his text, so live like it. That's essentially what he's conveying to these brothers and sisters in Christ. You have your citizenship in heaven. You've been gifted the perfection by which you are able to enter into paradise and glory with the Father. So live according to that gift. This is the high calling of God. This is the mark towards which we strive and run and walk. This is, I think, the amazing fact of the gospel. This confidence that Paul has comes not because he believes that he can achieve or attain this perfection, but because it's been given to him in Christ's cross. And now, you and I, likewise by faith, are cleared for entrance into this domain. Your conversation is in heaven right now, already. And a kind of that... That's how you should live. And all of which meant that we can now press toward the mark. Knowing that all of these things. These circumstances in which we find ourselves. They are transient. They are fleeting. They are passing. And we look forward to that day as he says in verse 21. Where when we will have that consummated righteousness. Righteousness this full and complete perfection as he says by as it's going to come by Jesus Christ who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself that's what we look forward to the day when these bodies that are riddled with sin and weakness Will be changed into glory and perfection. As he says there. Bodies like Christ. How amazing is that? And that's what is motivating him. He has this assurance. That he is a citizen of heaven right now. And he's looking forward unto that day. When all things will be made new. As he has promised in the book of Revelation. And as we know from this whole entire chapter. This is what is moving him. So what is moving us? What is motivating us in our Christian walk? What is pushing us forward and to persist in this faith that, that we claim that we have in the midst of hardship, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of turmoil? I think it's just this. The fact that our heavenly citizenship has given to us Precisely because Christ went to the cross for us. We keep that in front of us. Keep the cross ever in view. Knowing that that's our claim to this perfect afterlife. (laughs) Not things that we can apprehend and attain. But that which Christ has already apprehended. And by which he apprehends us. This I would say is the preeminent hope of the church. Of those who would say they are part of Christ's family by faith. It's not in us. It's not in anything that we can accomplish. Praise God. Our hope forever is Christ. Our object of heavenly joy. Our object of perfecting joy. The one, the Savior, who says he is going to remake all that was broken. All that was battered. And this is what his cross does. As it says there, as he says, he's subduing all things unto himself. There in that cross. The cross is a deep moment of truth. Because there he's... he's, Letting everyone know what his God, what his Father is all about. Redemption. Giving unto those who don't deserve it exactly what they... Giving unto those who deserve death exactly what they don't deserve. And there he's also about showing how glory is most chiefly seen through this act of love. And here we might say this is what is moving Paul. It's the cross of Christ. Which again is upheld now as this object of heavenly perfecting joy. Because of who was on that cross. May we likewise have the same motivation. May we likewise have the same persistence. Which comes from the same joy. Jesus Christ our Savior. Let us pray.